This is Ozarks at Large for Tuesday, January 31st, 2023. This is 91.3 KUAF, a listener-supported service of the School of Journalism and Strategic Media at the University of Arkansas. I'm Kyle Kellams. It is a good idea to check on whatever appointments or scheduled events you have on your calendar. A wintry mix of precipitation across the region responsible for several cancellations, postponements, and altered scheduling. National Weather Service isn't giving us much hope of much of the snow, ice, or sleep melting away in the next 24 hours. Be careful. Later this hour, a preview of a panel discussion in February at the Rogers Public Library. The panel discussion will feature four nationally known black children's authors and illustrators who will discuss their work and why it's so important for all of us to see more diversity on the pages we read. A conversation with the organizers of that panel discussion in about 20 minutes on today's show. We begin with school vouchers. Governor Sarah Huckabee Sanders is making one of the pillars of her education policy school choice. Details of that plan have yet to be made public, and terms like parental choice and school vouchers and educational savings account may leave people more confused than informed. Ozarks at Large's Matthew Moore helps us better understand what the plan could look like for Arkansas students. In 2015, the Arkansas State Legislature created a program that provides nearly $7,000 per school year to help send eligible children to a private school. According to the website for the Arkansas Department of Education, the Succeed Scholarship is assisting 479 students and costing the state $3.3 million annually. Some folks call this a scholarship. Others would say this is a voucher. For consistency's sake in my reporting, I'll refer to this and any other future program that may be implemented as a voucher, as this term seems to be the most accepted one nationwide. So, what is a voucher? It's, at its bare bones, public funds diverted to private educational expenses. That's Stephen Owens, the education director at the Georgia Budget and Policy Institute a nonprofit, nonpartisan advocacy organization. He says we've seen a resurgence of this concept in the last 10 or 15 years. As a way, it's been branded as educational freedom, allowing parents uh, more say in the education of their child. But what we've seen is just an increase in discrimination, a watering down of the education of children. There are a few arguments that those in favor of school choice make as to why a school voucher is the right choice in Arkansas. The first is the idea of parental choice. Here's Lori Lee, the chairman of the Reform Alliance, which is a pro-school choice group based in Little Rock. No one knows a student better than their parent. And so there are thousands of parents across this state who would and should be able to access other alternatives. But for the reasons financially, they can't. So they pay taxes and they pay taxes to the school, which we all should. But at the end of the day, their child's not being successful in that environment. So it would stand a reason to take that money and make sure it's being used properly so that our kids get educated. And if if the objective of education is to educate children, then it shouldn't depend on what model we use. It should depend on the outcome of the child. One rebuttal to that argument stems from the statement that no one knows a student better than their parent. Jeff Perry is the superintendent of schools in Rogers and has spent 18 years working as a school administrator in his home state of Virginia, as well as in Colorado and Tennessee before coming to Rogers, Arkansas. In another school district, 
nearly 50% of our parents had lost custody of their children. And so in that particular situation, the vast majority of these children were being raised by grandparents. So if over half of the parents had lost custody of their children, then allowing those particular parents to make decisions on educational decisions that could impact the child for a lifetime, those individuals may not be the best ones to make long-term decisions. Another argument in favor of school choice is that there is tax money allocated for students and their education, and they should have a choice in how to use it. Lori Lee, again with the Reform Alliance, uses the terminology of an education savings account, or an ESA. At first, I was confused how a school voucher would differ from an ESA. Remember, a school voucher, as we explained earlier, It's, at its bare bones, public funds diverted to private educational expenses. I asked Lori if she would advocate for public schools to continue receiving tax money. She said, Oh, absolutely. I mean, we, our organization actually is one of our uh, deliverables is to help parents be better advocates for their children in their public schools uh, and to help come around their public schools and make them more successful. I, I'm, I'm still having a little bit of trouble seeing where this education savings account comes from. Where does that money come from? Because there's not just thousands of dollars, $18,000 per student that's just sitting out in the ether. That money's going somewhere right now, right? So that's a great question. So it's actually, if you if you look at the data, these programs actually st- save states millions and millions of dollars. In the city of Little Rock, it cost us $18,000 per student to educate. And ESA would be worth the foundation and funding uh, or maybe not even the entire foundational funding, which is right now around seventy-eight or seventy-nine hundred dollars. So you know, you do that math. That's a that's a savings of almost ten grand. Not only that, but the public school keeps some of that funding in perpetuity. Okay, so let's say if you have a hundred kids that go to a school and one leaves, only a portion of that funding leaves for that child. Then that child only gets that seventy-eight hundred dollars to be educated on. All right. And the rest of it is either is either not given to the school or kept at the school. So the additional funds that are kept at the school now can be distributed to the other 99 children. So schools actually start having more money per student to spend. Now, they're going to argue with that, but those are the facts. I asked Jeff Perry, Roger's superintendent, about this. I'm not sure that particular math works out. Now, I do not know the full extent of what you guys talked about. And I don't know the, you know, what happened prior to that conversation. And I'm not sure if she's talking about some, perhaps some capital outlay expenditures associated with that. And I will admit that I am new to Arkansas, but I know that we would receive somewhere around $8,000 per child. And so I'm not sure where the other 10,000 comes from. But part of the problem that you would run into is that if that one child does leave and that particular student uh, is allowed to take their money with them, we normally do not or normally are not able to reduce a classroom teacher. So none of our operational costs will go down. 
Stephen Owens of the Georgia Budget and Policy Institute raises a similar point. When five kids leave your local school, you can't fire one twentieth of a teacher. You can't cut off five seats on the school bus. You can't turn the heat down five children's worth. So all your costs remain the exact same. Yet you're now dealing with thousands of dollars or less to educate students. That's higher class. That does mean teachers will be fired. Teachers are where the vast majority of dollars go to in the school. That means teachers will be fired just so we can kind of roll the dice for these kids to get a better education. Let's say that a student takes that $8,000 and tries an alternative method of education. Perhaps it's a private school or perhaps they decide to use that money to homeschool a child. And in three months, you decide that that's no longer working for you. And then you send the child back to school. Then we have already paid for the teacher. We've already paid for that particular slot, but we get no funding for that. And so then that creates a huge problem for us on a financial and staffing issue. A third argument in favor of school voucher program, according to Lori Lee, is that it's an educational equalizer for all Arkansas students. If you are a family that is well-to-do or moderately well-to-do, or you have the connections of those that matter, you can find the things that your children need. But if you're the middle and lower income wage earners in this state, your child is relegated to a school that is simply based on your zip code. And if that's not the caste system, then I don't know what is because we've got people that live in abject poverty that regardless of how their kids are performing at school, they are mandated by law to go to that school. According to data from the Arkansas Department of Education, there are approximately 110 private schools in the state. Now, that doesn't count charter schools, magnet schools, or micro schools. If you were to look at a map with a dot representing those schools across the state, you'll notice that the vast majority of them are in northwest Arkansas, the Arkansas River Valley, and the Little Rock metro area. So vouchers don't provide any actual choice for students living in rural areas because they have little, if any, access to private schools. Olivia Gardner is Education Policy Director for Arkansas Advocates for Children and Families. And she says that for students in rural areas who want to take advantage of a voucher program but live far away from the nearest private school, they would likely have to endure a long commute, which can lead to tardiness, reduce student achievement, and mean less involvement in extracurricular activities. These voucher programs really don't really aren't meant to serve our, our, our rural communities, which is a problem in a state that is pretty predominantly rural. <laughs> the second part of Matthew Moore's report on school vouchers in just about a couple of minutes on today's Ozarks at Large. In the second part, he'll ask how the math might work and why some students might not be helped as much by school vouchers as other students. That's just ahead on today's Ozarks at Large. And if you'd like a daily list of what was on Ozarks at Large each day with links provided so you can listen to each story in our interview or share by email or social media, we have just the thing. The Ozarks at Large daily newsletter does all of that for free. You can sign up at KUAF.com for the five times a week free email. And to listen to the latest episode of Ozarks at Large, you can always ask your smart speaker to please play Ozarks at Large. FrostFest returns to the Washington County Fairgrounds February 4th from 2 to 7 p.m. 
This outdoor beer festival features over 40 local and regional breweries, vendors, food trucks, live music, and more. Proceeds to benefit apple seeds and barley, hops, and water. Tickets at fossilcovebrewing.com. Later this hour, our Middleton Grammarian Catherine Sheralds is back to start a new series of conversations about language. Inflammable is the original form. And flammable, a modern invention, according to a Florida State University professor, was done for the sake of simple folk. A brand new visit from, and a quiz provided by, our militant grammarian, that's ahead. Hey, it's A. Martinez from Morning Edition. Waking up your body every morning is hard enough, so why not make waking up your mind easier? Every morning, we bring you the latest news and headlines, plus a little something to make you smile, think, maybe even laugh, so you can get those neurons fired up for the day ahead. So wake up your brain with us. Listen to Morning Edition from NPR News every weekday. Morning Edition, tomorrow morning and every weekday morning from 5 until 9 on 91.3 KUAF. This is Ozarks at Large. I'm Kyle Kellams. We now continue our reporting on school vouchers in Arkansas. Earlier, Ozarks at Large's Matthew Moore discussed the three main arguments those in favor of the program offer. Parental choice, tax money following the child, and that school choice is an equalizer for students. As Matthew reports, that choice may not be much of a choice for rural students. Here he is speaking to Lori Lee, a school choice advocate. Well, what about a kid who lives in Winslow, Arkansas, for example, and the closest school district may be West Fork, it may be Greenland, and they don't have, you know, they're not succeeding in a, in a public school system, but they don't have a private school anywhere close to them. Uh, do you think these students should have reasonable access to private schools, even if they want to use uh, an ESA or a voucher? I do think that, but I think that there will, uh, if you supply the uh, demand, then it will come. It's a supply and demand thing. Uh, But uh, I understand the the supply and demand element of it, but, you know, Winslow is a town of, you know, maybe a thousand people. How is the demand going to be met if there's, you know, there's, you know, a couple of hundred kids in the the high school in general and, and two or three kids decide that they want to leave? How are they going to be able to have access to these voucher programs if they don't live reasonably close to a private school and want to use this system? Does that make sense? That's Yes, absolutely. That's a great question. Well, the research shows that most people, unless you're extremely rural, live within 10 or 15 miles of a private school. Now, in Arkansas, that number may be a little uh, uh, larger. So that's why they would include things like transportation fees inside the inside the program so people would have money to travel. The closest private school for a student in Winslow would be St. Joseph Catholic School in Fayetteville, 26 and a half miles away. One concern that those opposed to a school voucher program is that it can be detrimental to disadvantaged students like those with disabilities and those whose first language is not English. Olivia Gardner again. Because private schools um, may not accept them or do not have to offer the special services that they need. Private schools are not required to follow an Individualized Education Plan, or IEP, which are created to make sure students with special needs are able to properly learn in the classroom. IEPs are critical for students in special education classrooms and public schools, but not solely limited to that. Enrollment in a special education class is not a requirement to qualify for an IEP. 
and not all private schools are bound to follow the same inclusion practices. That means a private school can discriminate against a student if they are a member of the LGBTQ plus community or have a parent, that is. Or a school can discriminate against a student who does not practice the same religion as the ones being held by the school. And parents aren't entitled to the same procedural safeguards that they are under IDEA in public schools. IDEA stands for Individuals with Disabilities Education Act, which includes, in part, screenings in school to detect and monitor learning disabilities in all public school students. This is, of course, in addition to many other things public schools are required to provide that private schools are not. Stephen Owens again here. The fact that we are providing hot meals for children, transportation provided to every community in America, to your school and back. These are things that private schools honestly have no answer for because they haven't had to. You know, it's been a little bit of a place for richer Americans to go. If we start treating those things as extras, I I don't think we're going to realize until it's too late how vital those were to the way we considered schooling. State Representative Jim Wooten of BB submitted House Bill 1205 on January 24th that would require schools that accept state money to provide transportation for students within 35 miles. When I asked Lori about the fact that private schools are not required to follow an IEP and if that concerns her, she says absolutely not. We just had an audit here in the state uh, in the city of Little Rock a year or so ago what they're doing with the special needs funds and very few of them are going to special needs kids. So what's exciting about that is um, we run the Succeed Scholarship, which is a voucher for kids with special needs. And we have approximately 60 schools, private schools that participate in that. The child has to be accepted to the school first before they can apply for the scholarship. And why that's important, we don't want schools taking kids that they can't serve. This program should be for people to find models that work for their kids, not just to be able to go to some private school. It doesn't, it doesn't matter to us if it's a private school or a home school or a micro school or a better charter school or a better public school. With this school voucher system, it seems likely that each student will be given the same amount of money to use toward a different school. The number we've heard from Lori as well as Jeff Perry, Roger's superintendent, is likely around $8,000. But, like most systems, some students use more resources than others. Here's Jeff. We have a young, a young child, elementary school, and we're probably spending somewhere in the neighborhood of sixty dollars to $80,000 on this one child. Heavy-duty special education needs. Wonderful young man, love having him in our school system, making some progress, but just has a lot of needs. Parents will probably not take that child out of school, but no private institution would offer the same kind of services for the $8,000 they could take with them. And so probably some of our students who have some language deficiency, and, and over half of our students are... ELL students, then very few of them will leave because same situation. Nobody will provide those kind of services. And then some kids that are just struggling. So the whole point of that is, is that the kids who will remain are going to be higher need students that require 
more attention. And if you don't have the educational dollars that you had before, not only are your operational costs staying the same, there's no evening out of of the students that are not high needs. And so not only will our operational costs go the same, it just won't be that balance anymore. Jeff told me the two main concerns he has when it comes to a voucher program is transparency and accountability. By transparency, he means being able to keep track of the money from those vouchers and ensure that they're being used correctly, whether it's for a private school or if a parent wanted to use that money for homeschooling. By accountability, he means ensuring that there are regular assessments of students to be sure that students are in fact succeeding in their new school environment. State Rep. Wooten also submitted House Bill 1204, which would require schools that accept state money to provide annual assessments for its students. Two weeks ago, I reached out to the Arkansas Department of Education to see if there were any specifics on Governor Sanders' school choice plan or if a dollar amount had been set for what a school voucher would be worth. They replied to my email saying that details are not available yet. For Ozarks at Large, I'm Matthew Moore. This is a Tuesday edition of Ozarks at Large. Art Ventures at 20 South Hill in Fayetteville will host an opening reception for the exhibition Frame of Mind Thursday evening from 5 until 8. The gallery describes the work as an unparalleled opportunity to gain a deep understanding of the richness and diversity of black art. Featured artists include Candace Dahls, Charles Brooks, Carletta Williams, Duan Gilchrist, Justice Jane Henderson, and M.J. Fentis. The work can be seen through April 3rd. And Art Ventures is teaming up with Cash to present The Fear of the Fearless at the Medium at 214 South Main Street in Springdale. This exhibition features an assemblage of 3D ceramic works, paintings, and photography by Eric Andre, Vincent Frimpong, and Markeith Woods. The images sent with the press release are pretty captivating. Woods is from Pine Bluff. Andre and Frimpong are from Ghana. Cash Creative Exchange Fund supported the exhibition through a grant from the Tyson Family Foundation. The Fear of the Fearless at the Medium in Springdale can be seen through March 18th. 211 South, an art gallery at 211 South Main in Bentonville, will open an exhibition of art created by Sam King called Outliers. Curated by Kelly Lair, the exhibition will be free and open to the public from February 9th until May 5th. Sam's art combines color, texture, and shape into unique work. Of this collection, Outliers, he told the gallery he works in series, which means at any given time he may have 10 to 20 active paintings going on in his studio, though inevitably there are a few paintings in the group that are aimed elsewhere. These might be the beginning of another wave of paintings, but sometimes they're just outliers. Sam King is also a respected and innovative musician. He just recently co-hosted an edition of the KUAF Vinyl Hour with Robert Bishop Outliers at 211 South in Bentonville from February 9th until May 5th. And Crystal Bridges Museum of American Art in Bentonville is using a new exhibition to examine how works of art can connect people and ideas across time. Seeing one another, new views on the Alfred Stiglitz Collection 
opened this past weekend and will be at the museum through the end of the year. No charge for the exhibition, which features work by African, European, and American artists. Theater Squared presents Kim's Convenience on stage through February 19th. Before it became an award-winning hit comedy series on Netflix, the playful, sweet, and hilarious story of the Kim family and their charming corner store was a smash on stage. 777-7477 or theater2.org for tickets. This is Ozarks at Large. February 11th, a Saturday, the Rogers Public Library will host four acclaimed children's book writers and illustrators. This panel discussion is actually the fourth edition of something called We Write for You, put together annually by the T. Rose Foundation of Northwest Arkansas and Alpha Kappa Alpha Sorority Phi Alpha Omega Chapter. This year's panelists include Ashley Franklin, author of Not Quite Snow White, Vashti Harrison, the New York Times bestselling writer and illustrator of books like Little Leaders, Bold Women in Black History, Rafael Lopez, an illustrator who has worked with several authors, including Supreme Court Justice Sonia Sotomayor, and Rita Williams-Garcia, whose books like One Crazy Summer have earned honors, including the Coretta Scott King Award and National Book Award finalist designation. Last week, I reached Myra McKenzie-Harris, the president of the presenting chapter of Alpha Kappa Alpha, and Cora B. Davis, the president of the T. Rose Foundation of Northwest Arkansas. I reached them by Zoom to ask about the event they're co-sponsoring. Myra McKenzie-Harris says the We Write for You events, including this year's, were inspired after she saw Ashley Franklin read at a local event a few years ago. And she just did a really fantastic job of explaining why she thought it was important that children of color see themselves in children's lit or kitty lit as they call it in her space. And I was really intrigued by that particular book, not quite Snow White, because Snow White was my favorite Disney character. And I really decided that I was gonna build an entire panel around her and I told her the day that I met her, I said, I'm going to be in touch. I'm going to be in touch. You just, you know, give me your number. And the first year we had it in person, the Rogers Public Library and the Rogers Public Library Foundation came alongside us, along with the T. Rose Foundation of Northwest Arkansas, to host the very first one. Uh, We had two authors, one of whom was also a publisher, Wade Hudson, and an illustrator. And they very much focused on children seeing children of color in children's books. That's what they did. Those are the kinds of books that they wrote. And so we hosted our very first panel and and book signing with those three. And it's continued on since then. Now, the, the two that followed that were virtual because of COVID. But we're back in person this year and totally excited about that. And so each year we've just gone higher and higher. We've gotten um, more prestigious authors and illustrators each year. And we're really excited about uh, really reflecting that diversity matters, representation matters in children's literature. And so that's really the the purpose of it. And that's how we got started. Cora Davis, your um, organization is also helping this. Why is it important for you and your colleagues to be part of this? So the T. Rose Foundations, one of one of our um, mission, part a part of our mission, 
uh, a key part is uh, educational advancement. Um, and so during this month, which is Black History Month that we're going into, um, it, it the stars kind of align for a program such as this. So we are um, uh, happy to work for scholarships, which we which we offer to high school um, and graduate students. But this gives us an opportunity to engage younger students and get them started in the educational path, if you will. So uh, we we. Education is a key part of our mission. Myra Kenzie Harris, you mentioned um, um, Ashley is going to be there, but the panel, it's we have uh, men, women, illustrators, writers, folks born in the United States, for, uh, you know, uh, an illustrator born in Mexico City. So it's, and, and there are different ages represented in this panel. It's, it's a wide ranging panel, isn't it? Yes, it absolutely is. And one of the things that we decided to do this year was to really try to focus in on marketing to the Latinx community. And so bringing in someone like Rafael Lopez, who has worked with other authors and illustrators of color, uh, actually, part of the reason he was on our radar last year was because Jacqueline Woodson is a children's book author with whom he has worked on a few projects. We featured Jacqueline last year and one of her books and Raphael was the illustrator. And so we wanted to bring him in and again, widen the net, if you will, for those who might be interested in coming. So one of the things that we're going to have this year that we've not had in the past is simultaneous Spanish uh, translation and interpretation. Uh, we, we're hoping to reach into that community a little bit more. So in addition to the diversity of age, in addition to the diversity of religion, um, we certainly are looking at, you know, diversity with respect to race as well. Um, and, and that's something that we're really, really proud of, especially in the, in the Northwest Arkansas community and a focus in the Rogers area, just because of the makeup of the community there. I also want to ask you about Rita Williams-Garcia, because yes. this... She's amazing, and 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 the the books. Um, I think of Gone Crazy in Alabama, One Crazy Summer, PSB Eleven. These are, I think, if you are of a certain age when you find them, they could. I don't want to be overly dramatic, but they could be life changing. They're beautiful. They are, and indeed, she'll be reading from One Crazy Summer. Oh, that's obviously because it's a trilogy. She can't read the entire book, but she'll be reading a passage from One Crazy Summer, which is really one of the books that really launched her into like the stratosphere with respect to awards and things of that sort. And so I would agree with you. It can be a life changing book, especially for tweens, uh, black children in particular, uh, who may have family from the South. Uh, who may be in a position to have visited Alabama. Uh, you know, I think it's definitely uh, that trilogy is a is a set of books that can be life-changing. And it may, for reasons other than the fact that the sisters 
are black, it may allow individuals to identify with it just based on geography as well. Right. Cora Davis, I'm I'm you know we were talking about education, how important it is and how important reading is. And this is this is a sort of panel that if you are a parent, an educator, or a young reader, I think you'll get benefits from it. Absolutely. Uh, we want uh, parents to encourage their children. Um, you know, we are in the um, electronic age, and um, I know I have grandchildren, and they tend to be on their devices a little bit more than I frankly think that they should. Um, some of us are really getting away from reading. So I think, again, if we have books that children can relate to and parents that can encourage them, grandparents, relatives, um, I'll tell you a little uh, quick story. Uh, I have a cousin in Dallas, and years ago, she had trouble finding books for her son to take to birthday parties. Um, she wanted books that represented African-Americans. She went to bookstore after bookstore. That's when bookstores were in business. Uh, <laughs> and she couldn't find them. And, and she ended up opening a, a business called Black Images. And she ran that business for 25 years. And, and to this day, um, I meet people who were influenced, encouraged by that bookstore books that they bought, books that they read, books that they received as gifts. So um, it's just very important in the family, I believe. We know from a brief conversation we had before we started the, the, the formal conversation that we're of three different generations here. And, and Cora Davis, I want to ask you, because you mentioned how important it is to see representation in children's literature. When you were growing up and a young reader, did you have books that that represented and characters that looked like you growing up? I have to confess that I did not. I grew up in rural East Texas. Um, I um, went to a, uh, uh, what I would call a rudimentary ele elementary school. And we just basically uh, focused on the reading, writing, and arithmetic uh, part of of uh, of education at that time, but um, as I grew older and um, left that small town, and um, I actually ended up at Howard University in Washington D.C., and my my world grew exponentially. But uh, I did not get off to the great start that these young children will have the opportunity for here. Uh, by attending this event in Northwest Arkansas. Myra McKenzie Harris, you're the youngest of us. Um, did you uh, have, have you know, representative characters in, in books you read when you were young? So I was trying to, as you were asking Cora about that, I was trying to think about whether I did. And I, I'm, I'm struggling to remember any in particular um aesop's fables you know maybe mm -hmm. uh, because of the um because of the lo the location that those came from 
maybe that, but I can't think of any in particular. And we're talking about seeing representation for children of color, but I think it's also important for those who look like me to see a wide representation in, in the books that I should have had when I was young. I couldn't agree with you more. One of the things, one of the other goals for this program is to normalize the concept of seeing black children in lead roles in children's books and children's literature. Not only for the self-esteem that it may build within black children who see it, but also for non-black children to understand that the world of children's literature does not solely revolve around people and characters who look like them. Indeed, in this country in particular, we continue to see a diversification of the population. And so the more we can normalize the idea of seeing lead characters in books who may not look like what is for the current time, the majority, um, the better off we are. We've talked about three of the panelists. I don't want to leave the fourth one out. I, I hope I say the name right, Vashti Harrison? That's correct. Um, An author, an illustrator, a filmmaker. This is the one creative person I was not familiar with before getting ready for this conversation, uh, but fits right in. Vashti is amazing in her own right. I think if you were to ask parents of Black children under the age of six, about some of the books she's written, they probably have them on the bookshelves for their children. Little Legends, which is a focus on African-American men in this country, and Little Leaders, a focus on African-American women in this country. Uh, She, (laughs) I don't know how profitable it's been for her, but I don't know any people with children under the age of six who don't have at least one of those books. Uh, just absolutely fantastic. We're so excited to have her. And then two, she's one of those people that has that double role because she's an illustrator, having worked with Lupita Nyong'o on Sulwe, her book, having been the illustrator for that. I imagine several parents of Black children under the age of about nine have that book as well just masterful in her writing, but also in her illustrations. She's got some new pieces coming out soon. We're excited to hear her talk a little bit about that, Um, but absolutely amazing and slightly younger than some of the other people that we have on the panel. So we're excited to have her as well. I would just like to shout out to Rogers Public Library for hosting this. It uh, has grown as and when, when this idea was first um, uh, introduced, uh, they didn't know what to expect, but they said, okay. And they've said, okay, since then, uh, they've been a great supporter. So uh, I just want to say um, our Rogers Public Library knows what time it is. <laughs> yes, and so does its foundation. The Rogers Public Library Foundation yes. has been a huge supporter from the beginning as well. 
Myra McKenzie Harris is the president of Alpha Kappa Alpha Sorority Phi Alpha Omega Chapter, and Cora B. Davis is the president of the T. Rose Foundation of Northwest Arkansas. The organizations are co-sponsoring the We Write For You event taking place at the Rogers Public Library on Saturday, February 11th. Every child attending age 17 and younger will receive a free book from one of the four participating writers and illustrators. The event is free. It's open to all But you must register in advance, and registration will close Sunday. The registration can be made through eventbrite.com. Just follow the links associated with We Write For You 4 at the Rogers Public Library. Our conversation took place by Zoom late last week. Members of the Democratic Party of Arkansas have re-elected their leader after no other candidate was nominated. Josie Lenora, with our partner station KUAR in Little Rock, has more. Applause erupted on Saturday after Grant Tenniel was re-elected chair of the state Democratic Party. Dan Whitfield, who previously ran against both of Arkansas's Republican U.S. senators as an independent, told KUAR he was planning on running for party chair. But no party delegates supported his bid, and he failed to secure any votes for a nomination. Tennille has led the state Democratic Party since 2021, when the party was grappling with thousands of dollars of debt. Now, Tennille claims there are over $700,000 in the party's bank account. He said the plan going forward is to keep raising money. I have done my best to, as Governor Beebe always taught me, under-promise and over-deliver exceed expectations, and and begin to build confidence. 155 committee members were present for the vote. All positions were filled by acclamation when only one person was nominated for each job. Former Arkansas House candidate Janine Cotton was also elected first vice chair of the party. In Little Rock, I'm Josie Lenora. Tomorrow on Ozarks at Large, the word Latinx might be removed from official use by the state of Arkansas. Ozarks at Large's Daniel Carruth reports. And I identified with it because um, I'm a trans person um, and the term Latinx um, just encompasses my identity more. That story, an excerpt from the next new episode of our podcast, Undisciplined, and the return of the Fayetteville Mardi Gras Parade, now with more music, all on tomorrow's show at noon and 7 p.m. on 91.3 KUAF. And by the way, you can always access past complete editions of Ozarks at Large, as well as individual interviews and reports, by going to our website, ozarksatlarge.com. Calling all aspiring musicians, NPR's biggest music competition is back. Wow! I'm Taylor. Welcome to my Tiny Desk concert. And thank you for having me at the Tiny Desk, along with my buddy here, Stingy. This is um, an interesting setup here. NPR's Tiny Desk Contest is back for 2023. You could join a chorus of your favorite artist in playing the famous Office Studio. The contest is open to unsigned artists 18 and older. All you have to do is submit a video of yourself performing one song from behind a desk. Entries are open on February 7th through March 13th. For rules and guidelines, visit tinydeskcontest.com. 
www.npr.org. At a tiny dance at NPR. Guess who is back in the Anthony and Susan Hoy News Studio? It's, it's been a long time. <laughs> Our Milton Grammarian, Catherine Childs, welcome back. Thank you. I'm so glad to be here. And and your New Year's resolution was not to surprise me with any quizzes. Oh, no. You, you're dreaming that. <laughs> <laughs> it might have been the a- a- exact opposite. Oh. <laughs> Let's get Surprising more quizzes more. for All Kyle. Right. Yeah. All right. Okay. So, Kyle, I bet you know the odd thing about the words flammable and inflammable. It's not only odd. It's potentially dangerous. Yeah. They mean the same thing. They do. But to... Can you say the naked ear? To the naked ear, it sounds like one should be not <laughs> the, the same. The yeah. of the other. And what, just say what, the, what it means. They could both blow up. Liable to blow up, burn, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Inflammable is the original form. And flammable, a modern invention, according to a Florida State University professor, was done for the sake of simple folk. <laughs> well, it is simpler. It is. If it's dumbed down. <laughs> I will take that. <laughs> I think for certain things, dumbing down is okay. Mm-hmm. That can in your especially garage. Especially, is something going to blow up? Yes. Yeah, right. Well, Kyle, I bet you didn't know what the name has been, what name has been assigned to a word pair like flammable and flammable that mean the same thing but seem that they should be opposites. I don't know, but I'm so happy to know that I will know. <laughs> I really am. Well, you know me. That I, I find all of these. Yes. Category things. They are called anti-autonyms. Anti-autonyms, yes. Okay. We have discussed a related term, contronym. Do you remember what those are? Isn't it contronym, contronym? It's one word. Yeah. And depending how you use it, it could mean two different things. Or the opposite. The opposite, yeah, exactly. Which is also dangerous. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> uh, th- those are also called auto-antonyms. Okay. So we're going to look at anti-autonyms, mm-hmm. and that's so it's the opposite of contronym. Um, an example uh, is the word seed, which means both to remove uh, – uh, an example oh, of contronym. Right. It means uh, both to remove seeds from something, say I'm going to seed this fruit, but it also means to plant seeds. Right. Yeah. Right. To grow the thing that you're going to have to take the seeds out of. Right. <laughs> but anti-autonyms, it follows logically, do not mean the opposite or even something different in any way. They mean exactly the same thing, flammable and Right. I was I'm – I think I'm going to learn otherwise, but I didn't know there were any others that we'll were we'll like – fl- Okay. Okay. <laughs> so now you know what they're called. Yes. Let's see if you can explain how these pairs mean the same. All right. The Florida State author cautions that some examples of anti-autonyms may simply be considered incorrect speech. Oh, okay. All right. But they're common. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. Okay. As related to food, Kyle, what does boned mean? Well, okay. Given the context of what we're talking about, that means that the bone is out. Yeah. Taking the bone out. what I would call deboned or what Uh, I've called, okay. And that's the anti-autonym. Okay. Yeah. Boned and deboned. Right. You the, don't put a bone into something. Right. Well, and, and, and I mean, I, I like to buy bone-in chicken. Right. So that's B-O-N-E hyphen I-N. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But not boned chicken. Right. And there probably shouldn't necessarily need to be a modifier for chicken. 
boned in, right? Chickens. Well, yeah, today it is because they're hard to find. Oh, yeah, you're right. Okay. (laughs) So, Kyle, if an investigative reporter finds a scandal on his beat, Mm -hmm. does he cover it or does he uncover it? Oh, the reporter does both. Yeah, so that's an anti-autonym. Okay, Kyle, what's the anti-autonym for inheritable? Like like an estate? Mm-hmm. Give me a hint. Uh, it, it starts with I-N, so probably the a- anti-autonym is... Herit? Heritable. Herit- heritable? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't, I've never heard wow. of it. Wow. But, uh, but it's just like flammable huh. and inflammable. So, oh. In the fact that the particle I-N does not necessarily indicate negation. Does that mean that one might come into an inheritance as opposed to— I don't use an before H words generally. <laughs> a inheritance. Uh, yeah, I guess so. Okay, wow. I guess. All right. Yeah, I'm not—I've huh. I've never heard it, but, you know, yeah. the Internet says it so. <laughs> okay, well, there you go. <laughs> Kyle, with changing weather the way we got it, I might need to loosen my coat. What's the anti-autonym? Unloosen? Yeah. 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 Well, we might say that, but it, it's – I don't hear it very often. Right. But – Usually kids. Unloosen this Right. Me, yeah, you know, yeah, you're right. You're thing. right. Here's one that is a colloquialism that is extremely irritating to linguist curmudgeons such as myself. But regardless of how many times I shoot it down, it comes back. What's the uh, anti-autonym to regardless? Irregardless. Yes. And that one, the reason I think, we don't need it. No. Right? No. And the thing is, is that, well, I, I think, it, well, I mean, I know, I, I, I believe that the erroneous form is a confusion between regardless and irrespective. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But, uh, you know, just the fact that we don't need, I guess the people who use irregardless don't think regardless but is what else the could, same. Yeah, I guess, yeah. 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 Maybe they don't even think it's a word. I don't know. But somebody very high up in academia used it a lot and drove me crazy. (laughs) Kyle, do you think these two words are the same or is there a distinction? Valuable and invaluable. I think there's a distinction. What do you think it is? Valuable means it has value. Mm -hmm. Invaluable means you can't calculate Mm -hmm. its value. Mm -hmm. I I think that's a common. um, The second, invaluable actually suggests something of greater value. Mm. Valuable is, yeah, it's valuable, but invaluable is a lot more valuable. Okay. Yeah. Finally, Kyle, let's talk about the following example that isn't always an anti-autonym but can be. Okay. Imagine a protest where things are getting out of hand. Mm -hmm. A police officer in charge might ask his buddy, should we stop the looting? Or he might ask, shouldn't we stop the looting? Mm. It's the same thing, isn't Mm -hmm. it? Mm -hmm. But it is an anti-autonym. Right. Because clearly should and shouldn't are, you think, are opposites. Right, but used in that way, you're absolutely right. So here's another, there's another nim for you. I love them. I bet we'll have more in the future. I hope so. Our militant grammarian is Catherine Sheralds. On the next episode of Resilient Black Women, Joy guides us through a meditation for the new year. It's an opportunity to slow down, to check in with your body, and to remind yourself 
All you have to do is take it one day at a time. All you need is your breath in your body. Your past self is proud of how far you have come. And your future self is in awe of who you will be. You can use this 20-minute meditation anytime you're feeling overwhelmed, overworked, or just need to take some time for yourself. A meditation for the new year on the next Resilient Black Women podcast. Available for free at KUAF.com and anywhere you get your podcasts. This is 91.3 KUAF. Fayetteville, Fort Smith, Bentonville, and Gravelly. Ozarks at Large is a production of KUAF, and today's show was put together inside the Anthony and Susan Hoy News studio at the Carver Center for Public Radio. Contributors to our program today included Matthew Moore, Josie Lenora, and Catherine Sheralds, our militant grammarian. Our theme is titled The First Hurrah. It is written and performed by Daryl Sean. Daryl's latest CD is titled Still Here. You can find it wherever you find your music online. We're going to be back with you tomorrow, weather permitting. No, we'll be back with you tomorrow at noon and 7 with a Wednesday edition of Ozarks at Large. Speaking of the weather, be careful out there. Call, double-check to make sure what you're doing is still happening. Uh, It will get warm again soon, we promise. A reminder that you can hear classical music at any time of the day with KUAF2. It is our digital station that you can listen to for free in any number of ways, including streaming at KUAF.com or by asking your smart speaker to please play KUAF2. Or you can use the free KUAF app for iPhone and iPad. Or you can use your digital radio that's in your car or in your home. KUAF 2, 24 hours a day, classical music. And KUAF 3 is almost 24-7 jazz, certainly through the work week. And then it also has encore broadcasts of all of our locally produced music programs like the Pick and Post with Mike Shirky and the Generic Blues Show with Paul Kelso. You can listen to KUAF3 just like you can listen to KUAF2. Keep on listening, and thank you so much for your support. I'm Kyle Kellums. Have a great rest of your Tuesday.